Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Tim Mitchell, Canadian rock icon, going to be inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame next Wednesday on... Uh, the morning show on global television. Kim, thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for all the good music over the years, man. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Oh, it was a walk in the park. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What a walk in the park though. Holy smokes. Oh, thank you very much. Nice to speak with you, Roy. Yeah. Good to speak with you. And just before we went on the air, we were both talking about you and I being members of the same survivors club, the heart health. Yeah. That's right, yeah. What year uh, did you have your episode? 2000. Okay, yeah, I was, I was after you for sure, but that's five years ago, so. Yeah, so. We're, so. Uh, we're, it's good we're here. We're happy I'm here. We're lucky, we're lucky we're here, because we both yeah. have the same thing, right? The left anterior descending artery. Yeah, 100% block, yeah. yeah. I think I had about, they said I had about 15 minutes to go. Oh, my God. That would have been it, so. Oh and you God. probably were the same, yeah, I uh, I was told mine was done on a Tuesday, and I was told a little bit later that I probably or I may not have made it to Friday. Same yeah, week, okay. so yeah, I was lucky because I didn't have a heart attack. Uh, I they caught it just in time. Uh, oh, okay, you did have one, right? I did have a heart attack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but you're good now. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, you you were going hmm, something's not right here, something's not right. Went in and then they found it. Yeah, I was out for a bike ride, and uh, we're supposed to be talking about music. I was uh, I was out for a bike ride, and it felt like somebody kicked me in the chest, and uh, mm-hmm. then I had it looked at, and then I went into denial, the guy thing, and uh, yeah. eventually it wasn't denial, didn't work anymore. So yeah, they fixed yeah. me, and twenty one years later, everything's working fine. Okay, well that's good. Good to hear. I'm I'm happy you're here, man. And you you brought up a funny thing. We're supposed to be talking about music. There's a bunch of uh, Toronto musicians. We we get together and we have these these dinners, and we go to like a really cheap restaurant and and uh, sit around. And, and I swear, we used to talk about music, but for the first 15 minutes, we all, actually we go, okay, we got 10 minutes to talk about our health and our medication. Then we're going to go on and talk about other. <laughs> like, oh yeah, my back, you know, this and that. It's, like, it's so funny that. We never talk about music, and then we go on and talk about other things. But yeah. It was good times. You yeah, know, yeah. It was really nice getting together with all of them. I'm sure it's a terrific time. And here you are. You're, congratulations, uh, Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. Well earned. Um, Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Great, great music. Great music. Well, Honestly, great music, man. Oh, thanks, man. I mean, just as a musician, you just put your head down and, and uh, start writing songs. I started doing that. It scared myself yesterday when I started thinking about when I wrote my first song was 49 years ago, and it was on the Isle of Rhodes in Greece. And then since then, it's been a, a fun night of just looking up and keeping your eyes open, keeping your ears open and your heart open, and and 
letting that soak in and hopefully getting some songs written. It was a really fun process all, all those years. Yeah, I was reading your bio, and uh, you headed for Toronto at 16 years of age, right? Uh, 17, actually. 17? Moved to Toronto. Yeah, moved to Toronto, lived at around uh, King and Parliament Street in a house that uh, the whole band had. It was $150 a month rent for the whole house. And we had three guys from the Don, who just got out of the Don jail living next to us. And um, uh, yeah, we that band kind of broke up when the weather got nice because our refrigerator was outside the back of the house <laughs> because it didn't work. Yeah. And when the weather got nice, we couldn't keep food cold anymore. So everybody moved back to Sarnia. Except me, I... I say, no, that's, that's, that's kind of paying your dues, don't you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Most definitely it's and, paying your dues. Yeah, and l- luckily the guys next door really liked us. They, you know, we were from, these young kids from Sarnia were having one of our first or second meals. We, we've, uh, you, you're uh, rehearsing already in the house, and the door just swings open at dinner one night while you're having your whatever, the craft dinner, rice and whatever we used to eat. Yeah. And these three guys just come down the hallway and they're like, we're your neighbors. Have you got something to drink? And we're like, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then they're like, you tell us, you tell us if anybody gives you a hard time, we're right next door. We're like, okay. <laughs> oh, man. Well, beer can buy you, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, dare I say it was aftershave at that time. We didn't have any beer. We couldn't afford it. And, and they're like, give us something to drink. And they're like, we don't have anything to drink. They go, well, what do you got? And I said, I don't know. I got some aftershave upstairs. Goes, go get that and uh, strain it so, through a loaf of bread. Yeah, I guess so. I, I can't, you know, it's, it's hazy times back then, but I do remember that part. <laughs> so uh, you and you and I are sort of the same uh, vintage. I think you're a couple of years younger than me. Not that many. I, I'm 69. Okay, so you're just a couple yeah. of years younger than me. So in our uh, in our lifetimes, we've gone from being kids who waited for the latest 45 to appear at the store for around a dollar, to new releases being available on YouTube and websites like Spotify, where where your new song mm-hmm. is, is available. Um, has this changed just the business side of music or music itself? Because songwriting is a billion-dollar-plus Canadian music economy reality. Has, has technology changed just the business side, or has it changed music? Oh, sure. It's changed both. Um, it's it, it's changed the business for sure. Uh, although for me, it hasn't really changed much, and I'll tell you why. Is because I always made my any money that I made was made offline. Um, uh, you don't you didn't make minimal amount off record sales. You you record royalties, yeah, or radio royalties, airplay royalties, yeah. Um, but it was mainly a, a live thing for me. I think even the Stones said that at one point. They said, you know, we only made money on, our, on a few records. Where we've made our money is touring. So that, that scene in Canada has always been pretty healthy, thankfully. Canadians really have supported Canadian talent. I, I really feel that. As far as how music has changed, I think we live in a... In a I'm going to quote somebody else here, a guy named Rick Beato. He's a YouTuber. We live in a day of sort of low information music music is very simple it's programmed a lot of the time now it's just the process of making it is different um if you take a led zeppelin song for example there's so many chord changes in one song whereas now you'll hear some hit song that's got kind of a beat and maybe three four notes on a bass and then all this singing going on top so 
music itself has really changed just out of maybe the economics of not being able to get bands together to pay them and stuff like that. Yeah. But I do really enjoy, right? I, I, I really enjoy watching music change. Um, when people ask me, I'm like, yeah, every generation says what they want to say in a different way. And, and I think that's a beautiful thing. And I hope they keep doing that. So uh, just like back in the 40s, the 30s and 40s, the Sinatras and all that stuff into rock and roll, the beginning of rock and roll. And then in the, the, the you know, when hip hop comes along and, and sort of program pop and house music, and all these other genres of music, it's, it's lovely watching this stuff keep sort of morphing itself because there's only 12 notes to work with that that's what people don't understand so we have to sort of keep throwing them around in different ways yeah i've never been quite sure whether life leads music or music leads life I'm, it seems to be like almost interchangeable when, when i think of my that's a good point yeah that's a good point i'd say i'd say the first but you know life leads music so yeah because we're, that we have to get inspiration to make music. So mm-hmm. what you're going through in your life um, really does dictate that, I, I feel. Because mm-hmm. I remember when the um, British invasion started, uh, everybody wanted to speak with an English accent. And, and there, was this, there was this different sound, and life headed in that direction. All of our lives, we were kids. We headed in that direction. It was really, it dragged us. It pulled us in that direction. And we wanted to sound mm-hmm. like them, and we wanted to be like them. And, and I think as long as as long as we keep music in our lives, Kim, and you know you play it and you you write it, and it's it's fantastic mm-hmm. music that you create. But as long as in some way we keep music in our lives, it makes life a more positive experience. It sure does. Yeah. <laughs> here, here. I don't want to get too deep on you here. No, that's that's not that's fine. That that's well said. Well said. Really. When you take on a project like the big fantasize, your first album mm-hmm. in thirteen years. How do you start something like that? Did you, did you, is it a work in progress over many years, or which eventually makes its way to the studio? Uh, or is it something that you take on, say, one day you get up and you say, it's time to, start to write some new songs? That's a good question. Throughout my career, Roy, uh, early in my career, albums would happen like in 30 or 60 days. You know, although we were touring musicians back then, so we'd be playing all the material, the music out at gigs and stuff like that, mm-hmm. roll into the studio. Now, uh, the things are done differently. Uh, the big fantasize is done uh, writing stuff at home over the course of a couple of years, as, as you mentioned. And I wasn't even going to do a new record until my producer, Greg Wells, who was in my band at 17, and then moved off to Los Angeles and recorded people like Katy Perry, uh, One Republic, I uh, had uh, hit songs by Keith Urban, uh, number one hit songs. He's, he's done really well. He did the soundtrack for The Greatest Showman, stuff like that. Wow, yeah. Um, he, yeah, he paid me a visit after my heart attack because uh, he was on his way back to Los Angeles, wanted to know how we were doing. We went for a little walk, and he said, are you doing anything? Are you writing? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm writing. But he's a busy guy. I'm not going to say, hey, you know, will you listen to my stuff? But he said, why don't I have a listen to your stuff? And I said, well, okay, great. If you can give me some feedback. So I gave him a USB key of shame, and off he goes. And uh, about a month later, he's like, I love all these songs. He says, will you come to Los Angeles and record them at my studio? I'm like, dude, I can't, I can't afford you. He goes, no, 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 we'll worry about all that later. He says, come on down, and, and let's record. So that's kind of how I went about doing that. So And that whole process, once that moment happened, which was kind of terrifying, taking on a recording another record, because um, there's, there's a lot of work involved, a lot of emotional work a lot of physical work uh it's all consuming 
you lose track of, of what's going on in the world. You lose track of your family and friends because you're just constantly thinking about all that stuff. Um, that took about two years, and we finished it just shortly before the pandemic. No, it's just amazing. I, the music is so good. And I, I really wanted to know how that came about. Because uh, I hear oh, different, I hear different stories from different musicians about how they construct and how they create music. For some people, it's almost like a technical experiment. For others, it's something from the heart, uh, and it's mm-hmm. it's always always interesting to find out. Let me go back to something else we talked about a couple of minutes ago, and that is whether music leads life or life leads music. Do you think there's such a thing as generational generational music, or, or is is music just beyond generational like a 20 year old will listen to one of your songs from 30 odd years ago and start jumping around yeah it's kind of mind-blowing that that happens i'll tell you when we when we play gigs sometimes we play these summer festivals across canada or, or certain resorts and and half the audience is are the kids of the people who used to come see me Wow. You know, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's neat. And they're holding up vinyl of my first record and stuff huh. like that. And they know the stuff. So I, I'm not sure whether that answers your question. but It does. But I, I think, yeah, I mean, I listen to music from different generations. You know, I'll listen to music that was my parents' generation. I'll throw on Sinatra or whatever. Yeah. And then uh, I'll throw on something uh, a little more modern. Um Oh, you know, I'll throw on Justin Bieber because the guy's just so talented to me, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I know, I know it's kind of cool for older people to put a hate on him, but I've, whenever they do that, I always go, if that kid was your son, you'd be so proud of him. He's so, such a great singer. He's so talented. He's worked so hard. And, and you know, if you, if you gave your kid at 17 hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, there's a good chance you might screw up here and there once in a while, too. So. <laughs> I've always believed that envy is a great compliment. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. All right, sure. Hey, yeah. If, you look, if you were to look back, I only have about a minute and just a bit here. So sure. let's go back to you being the 17-year-old who leaves home, and, uh, and you're going on to go to Toronto to get into the music business. Did you have any expectation, any realistic expectation at that time? When you look back at that kid today, what do you see? Well, what I see is when I got to Toronto, there used to be a bar called the Gasworks. And I think it's actually mentioned in the movie Wayne's World. And the Gasworks was a bar in Toronto that that all the rock bands played. And I remember going, man, I will have made it in the music business if we played the Gasworks ever. I just remember thinking that that, that's, that's as high as the bar gets. Pardon the pun, but uh, you know, um, I never thought that it would go on this long. I thought, you know, 30 years ago, man, I, w- I would have been applying to be a groundskeeper at a resort somewhere. And I like working outdoors, and I like getting my hands dirty. So I didn't think music would go on, but it, it did, and I'm grateful for that. Man. So uh, in about 30 seconds, what's uh, what's ahead now for you? What are you going to um, do? Well, I'm like to get back touring I'd, li- I'd like to see this music business co- come alive again um and not just drive in theaters but uh i think at 22 hopefully i'll get back out on the road and feel good enough to do it so. well i hope you do and uh congratulations for a well-deserved entry into the canadian songwriters hall of fame and you're a pretty damn good broadcaster too oh thanks Roy. <laughs> <laughs> i'm a little rusty but thanks a lot man. very nice yeah. chatting with you days like these. 
have presented us with all sorts of interesting conundrums over the last year plus, one of them being the land border between the Canada and the United States. And U.S. Congressman Brian Higgins of New York State is perhaps the most adamant member of Congress calling for the reopening of the land border. Mr. Trudeau has said the uh, Canada-U.S. land border may reopen for fully vaccinated Americans by mid-August. Maybe, he says. Congressman Higgins, thank you very much for making time for us on the program. How are you, sir? I'm good, sir. How are you? Good to be with you. You uh, you have a great relationship with and respect for uh, Canada, Congressman Higgins. Keeping that in mind, what's your message to both President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau about the border opening? Well, follow the science, follow the facts, follow the data as uh, citizens from both sides of the border, U.S. and Canadian, have been admonished to do for the past 16 months. And the science says that if you're fully vaccinated, you have strong immunity uh, against COVID uh, and getting it and giving it. And therefore, the border should be open. And people who have been separated from loved loved ones for the past 16 months should be able to reunite. Uh, People that own cottages. uh, I spent most of my uh, summers during my whole life on the Canadian shores of Lake Erie at Bay Beach. Um, people bought cottages over in Canada. They should be able to visit them. They should be able to enjoy them. They should be able to maintain them. And Canadians should be able to travel freely to the United States because vaccines, you know, the availability of them was the inflection point. That was the game changer. And therefore, that should account for something. That should be recognized and it should be celebrated. And I think it's going to be celebrated early in the month of August. Are you surprised that the border remains essentially closed? I am. I think, uh, you know, at least the category of who is an essential traveler should have been expanded months ago uh, for those who have been vaccinated. Uh, Again, this is, you know, these vaccines are probably the greatest biomedical advancement uh, in the past 75 years. And when researchers originally went into, you know, trying to find a vaccine, Uh, They didn't expect it would be this early, and they certainly did not expect that it would be this powerful. Uh, The vaccines have been been approved are 85, 90, 95 percent effective in providing uh, individuals strong immunity from both giving COVID or getting COVID. And, And that needs, again, to be recognized. Those people did the right thing on behalf of their families, on behalf of their friends, on behalf of their neighbors and their binational neighbors and and both Canadians and and U.S. citizens who have been fully vaccinated should be able to travel. You've heard from uh, Canadian members of Parliament, Liberal members of Parliament, Wayne Easter of Prince Edward Island, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith of Toronto. They support your view of opening the land border. Also business groups in this country, I believe 59 of them at last count, And I believe they also wrote a letter to Mr. Trudeau in June calling for the land border to be open. So are you hearing from significant numbers of Canadians beyond the ones I've just mentioned who are signing on to what you're saying, open the border, open it now? I think so. But look, nobody is suggesting that this be done arbitrarily. Uh, We just want to do what it is we were told to do, and that is follow the science. For example, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States. It's the largest public health agency in the world. Their website relative to COVID guidance is very clear. It says, if you have been vaccinated fully, you can return to pre-pandemic activity 
without wearing a face mask, without social distancing, and without quarantine. My concern is that the Canadian uh, federal government will announce an opening, but with a lot of restrictions that really won't represent uh, the kind of opening that people deserve. Uh, so my hope is that they'll take a look at this and provide real relief to property owners, to people, loved ones who have been separated for the past 16 months. Think about this for a second. You know, the National Hockey League players were granted an ex exemption uh, owing not to science, but owing to the NHL playoff schedule. Uh, the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, I get it. They're, they're allowed to come back. They're giving it an exemption, not following the science, but following you know, the fact that uh, people in Toronto want their, their Major League Baseball team back. I get all of that. But so should people who have been separated from loved ones for the past 16 months and people that own property. Yeah, so you want more, something more definitive from Mr. Trudeau than what he said essentially is that Americans who are fully vaccinated, he said this a couple of days ago, may be allowed to enter Canada by land by mid-August. Trudeau's also said, and here's his quote, we will make our decisions based on the interest of Canadians and not based on what other countries want, end quote. That sounds like it's directed at you. Well, I think we all want the same thing, and that's we want to follow the science and recognize that you know, for the past 16 months, we have been through a very, very difficult time, uh, both U.S. and Canadian citizens. We are friends. We are neighbors. Uh, I love Canada. I love Canadians. And and we should just be able to enjoy that relationship, given the fact that we have now what we didn't have a year ago. And that was a very powerful medicine against giving or getting COVID. And those U.S. citizens who have been fully vaccinated, those Canadian citizens who have been fully vaccinated, I personally pushed the White House to give uh, our Canadian neighbors over a million doses of the Moderna vaccine uh, to assist them toward the goal of meeting our mutual objectives. And that is to open the border safely and successfully for both U.S and Canadian citizens. Yeah, thank you for that. And and you're also, you're from the western New York area, from the Buffalo, New York area. So as you pointed out, you're very, very familiar with the, with this with this country of ours. Um, do you have support? Of, I know that uh, Senator Schumer, who's the head of the Senate, uh, at least on the Democrat side, visited Buffalo, visited the border some weeks ago and supported the reopening of the land border. How much support is there in the federal government of the United States, and does it extend to the White House? It's growing. There is some, you know, some alternative views in, in the White House at the moment. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, the, the congressional uh, pressure brought to bear on our White House has had a positive impact toward the goal of lifting restrictions towards the goal of opening the border. Uh, I was joined by 70, uh, 70 of my colleagues asking uh, both the Biden administration and Prime Minister Trudeau uh, to open the border. As you have mentioned, there are Canadian members of parliament uh, that support this effort. There are regional mayors in the province of Ontario that support opening the border. There are business trade organizations on both sides of the border. And this isn't only about economics, it's also about life quality. It's about the shared tradition of, of Americans and Canadians uh, enjoying 
both what what both countries have to offer. Uh, it's important for me because I represent Buffalo, and every aspect of our economy in Buffalo and Western New York is impacted uh, by Canadians being able to travel on a reliable uh, basis uh, over to the United States. Professional sports franchises, the Buffalo Niagara International Airport, 30% of the users of the airport are Canadians. Right. Um, Canadians spend $15 million a year in healthcare services in Buffalo and Western New York. So, you know, both sides of the border are affected by this. So final question for you, uh, sure. Congressman Higgins. Do, what, what is your sense of what, in fact, will happen? We have the prime minister saying maybe by mid-August, and I'm sure he's being nudged. I suspect he's being nudged uh, by, by uh, your colleagues, maybe by the president himself. But he says maybe by mid-August, fully vaccinated Americans will be allowed into Canada, drive into Canada. What is your sense of what's going to happen? And do you have some sort of sense of what the timeline is going to be and whether it'll be a situation where they say, okay, on this particular date, the border is back to being open the way it was? Or will it be a slow and graduated uh, road that we take to reopening? What's your, what's your sense? I think it'll be the latter. I think it'll be slow and, 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 and uh, incremental. Uh, I think that you'll see an announcement tomorrow by federal Canadian officials as to when that will begin. But let me also say this to you, sir. I, I, uh, I think that the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and U.S. President Joe Biden, they're both men of goodwill. I think they understand the special uh, status of the U.S.-Canadian relationship. I think they want to do the right thing. Politics plays into this on both sides of the border. That's just the reality of life. But I think in the end, all of us have been admonished to follow the science. And when you follow the science, if you did the right thing by getting fully vaccinated, if those vaccines were available to you, you should be that should account for something. And we should be able to uh, cross the border in a safe, successful way. And I think we're going to get there. I just would rather that it be sooner, sooner rather than later. I agree with you. I received an email from a listener whose 14-year-old son was chosen as valedictorian by his fellow grade 8 students. So, you know, 14-year-old kids, this is an honor. This is important. This is a developmental stage in their lives. So he worked, as you can imagine, diligently on his speech, which was approved by the teacher, who had explained the fundamentals of what was expected, not two days before the speech was to be delivered by video, I believe, the school principal got involved. And this is where we bring the 14-year-old's mother, Lainey, into the discussion. Lainey, thank you very much for joining us, and thanks for sharing this story. What was your son's reaction to being chosen valedictorian by his classmates? Oh, it's actually, it's a very funny story, really. Uh, he found out because I was sitting next to him at the computer helping him with his homework when an email popped up on my phone from his teacher. So I quickly opened it and I started to read it aloud actually to him. And it said, congratulations, George, you've just won the valedictorian award. And it was just a weird way to tell him. And so he became speechless and he said, you've got to be kidding. And I continued to read this email and the teacher proceeded to say, um, don't tell George yet. I want to make it more personal and phone him in the morning if I could. And telling him through this email just isn't personal enough. So, well, you can imagine how we both started to laugh because that really was too ironic that I'm sitting 
reading an email, and he got to hear it that way first. So anyhow, I didn't feel badly for telling him because there was no way I would have been able to keep that to myself. I would have been busting. So he quickly left the computer, ran into the family room to tell his dad, and he said, guess who the next valedictorian (laughs) is for my school? And the look on his face told it all. He ran around the house in amazement of himself because really, I can't think of a time where he'd ever won something so significant like that. And uh, school's never really been all that easy for him compared to his older brothers. And I know he just felt so proud of himself that he beat all of his friends for this award, especially the one friend that he just figured was going to win because he always wins everything. And uh, really, quite frankly, I don't think I've ever seen him so excited about something. He was he was truly on a high that night. So you had the whole house excited, and appropriately yeah. so. This is a big, as you said, a big moment for a 14-year-old, and particularly fits the first time he's been recognized in this matter. So how did he go about creating his valedictory address, and what did he intend to convey? And we know it's been a very difficult year for students, but more than a year, and parts, certain parts of Canada more than others, but they've experienced compromised classroom time and engagement with friends of school. So how did he go about creating his address? Well, in the excitement of everything that had happened that night, I said to him, let's listen to a valedictorian speech that I had actually just heard. One of my friends had posted it on Facebook, and it might give us some ideas what to talk about and how to make it exciting to listen to and what message it was that you would want to give to your friends and teachers. And George thought that was a great idea. So we started listening to all kinds of speeches, and it really made him realize how important of a job it is to tell your great graduating class something really significant that he had learned throughout the years and being together and something that he could take home and remember forever. So George was really thinking he didn't know where to even start with this valedictorian address because everything's been so strange with lockdowns and everything. And he's, he said to me, do I talk about how horrible it's been to not go to school during this pandemic? Or do I talk about learning online is next to impossible and it's boring and I miss my friends, I miss sports, activities, I just miss my life. So he decided just that, that he would talk about how really he felt. And it's not like he had a lot of recent experiences in the last two years for grade 7 and 8 because they were so interrupted with school closures and lockdowns. So he just, there was just not simply enough to talk about. So he decided that, um, yeah, he was going to talk about his real feelings. And rightly so. And the teacher had given an outline, presented an outline of what he should do. And I gather from your email that when George showed the teacher the speech, the teacher was quite uh, satisfied, happy with it. And uh, there was going to be a video. And at this point, and I think this is the Friday before the video is to be seen uh, by his classmates, the valedictorian video is to be seen. And the principal now becomes involved. Tell us about that. Um, well, yeah. And it wasn't a call, was it? It was an email that she sent. Right. It, it was an email. The, uh, the email basically followed the teacher uh, saying that everything was okay, and we had done the video already at that point. And so now her, her crazy email basically it, it just made us so angry. She apologized for getting back to him so late, 
um, that she had been busy all week, but now she finally had a, a time to read his speech and made some edits, and she wanted him to make a few changes. And the first was that the speech needed to be in the we form instead of I, because she said you have to be representing all of your classmates, not just yourself. And and then secondly, she she said you have to thank your teachers and staff specifically by mentioning each teacher and add a like, collective memory that all of you would recall, just like you did for, he mentioned one teacher in his speech, but that just wasn't good enough. So she literally goes on to say, you can edit the document and get back to us uh, within a few hours, and then we will uh, look at it again. And then you could re-record it, which was just absolutely crazy, because re-recording something that already took us three hours to do when a teacher had already okayed it, was just not okay with us. No, and uh, the principal in total, I gather, had corrected more than half of your son's speech. Here are some uh, responses on Twitter to the story we're sharing with you. Uh, Lainey talking about her 14-year-old son, George, the valedictorian, so chosen by his classmates in grade 8, before the principal decided to change things. Well, he's still a valedictorian, but we'll get back into the story. Here are some commentaries that have uh, come in. Uh, should invite the principal on your show if he doesn't come on. It's a it was a it's a woman principal. Uh, let the social media warriors put him in his place. Name the school and the principal. I would advise the young man to let the school make whatever changes they want. Then stand up and deliver the beautiful speech that he wrote. Unbelievable! Who does that principal think she is? Let's get back to Laney on the Roy Green Show. On the Chorus Radio Network. So, uh, just to recap very quickly, your son, 14, valedictorian, presents or prepares the speech uh, as it was outlined for him. And the teacher uh, accepted the speech, but the principal gets involved 48 hours before the video is to be seen. Now, the principal doesn't call, but sends an email and corrected more than half of your son's speech. Tell us again, what did she want your son to change? What was unacceptable or inappropriate or otherwise lacking in meeting with the principal's desires, including naming you and your husband? Right. Well, basically, um, she removed things like he said our grade 8 year was a disappointment, um, and she put crossed out disappointment and put compromise, not what you expected. She got rid of the whole concept of the speech, was that the lockdowns that existed and he wasn't allowed to go to school to be with his friends and how lonely he felt and that learning online was not really working for him. She just literally crossed it all off like it was nothing. And then she corrected his jokes thinking they were offensive offensive and politically not correct. But truly, she just didn't understand his humor. And she even crossed off thanking his parents. Um, yeah, she she literally changed mom and dad, crossed it off and said, put, uh, we thank our families. And, hmm. you know, her whole rationale was that for that was to not offend those that don't have mom and dads. You need to be more general. But, you know, she wanted him to be more specific with respect to talking about his teachers. She said it'd be better to talk about each individual teacher and thank them specifically. As opposed to mom and dad. Yeah. Exactly. It, it was it was strange. I've never heard of such a thing. So what is George's reaction to this? Oh, gosh. Um, when he read the 
the email, he he literally started to to cry and he screamed for me to read it too and he just said no like there's just no way i am i quit this is crazy i'm sorry i ever did it and i am not doing that so he was very grateful that um, his dad and him had a chance to go and speak to her directly um but I, I think, you know, in the end, it takes away certainly from the, the great feeling that he had the day that he found out that he won valedictorian. Of course. So on the Friday, when the principal sent the email, didn't make the call, sent the email and corrected half of your son's speech, his valedictory speech, your husband, with your son, went to see the principal. And uh, your husband let the principal know directly what how he felt about the email and ultimately, share with us, please, what the decision of the principal was. Well, like saying that she she just, she wasn't happy with the way it was done. But basically, my husband said, she gave, gave her an ultimatum that we just won't do it and you can get yourself another valedictorian because there was no way that he could rewrite that and then have to re-record it. It's too much stress. It already took us three hours and um, it, it was too much on him to actually have to redo it. So Lainey, the principal then did did what as far as the speech is concerned? Well, she, she basically said um, that's fine. She didn't want to get a different valedictorian and she allowed it to be the way it was. And, uh, and then they, they put it on a, a USB stick for everybody in his class, and it was sent home the day of the graduation ceremony um, for everybody to watch at home in their, on their own computers. So after all of this consternation and the principal's involvement, negative involvement, don't name mom and dad. By the way, I lost my dad when I was 12. I wouldn't have had a problem with a classmate of mine acknowledging mom and dad, his mom or her mom and dad, would have been perfectly fine with me. Uh, and I think perfectly fine with most kids. But acknowledge the teachers, tell a story about the teachers, but not about your mother and your father. So ultimately, at the, at the end of the exercise, this exercise in total politically correct utility, the, the principal allows the original speech to go on. Right. So how, how is George now? If George has asked, because you described how excited he was. Right. When he was informed that he was the valedictorian, that he'd been chosen by his classmates. If George is asked now, post-event, how he feels about the entire experience, what does he say? Well, I think the biggest thing is he's very grateful that his par- his parents stuck up for him because he knew he was not capable of rewriting that in that afternoon she gave him and then re-recording it. And I, I think he knew that it would have just broken him. And quite frankly, the whole experience, I think, did break him to a certain degree because the wind was def- definitely taken from his sail. Mm-hmm. That beautiful feeling that he had the day that he actually won uh, was gone. I, you know, I feel like he lost his innocence that day. Mm-hmm. That you know, the reality is the world is a harsh place and we can only protect our children for so long from all the negativities and unfairness that goes on. And it truly was a disappointment. And that's what he said. Grade eight was a disappointment. And then this speech ended up being a disappointment instead of a really 
wonderful thing for them. It, you know, it's been a tough year and a half on everybody. Sure has. And I pray that our children are going to come through this stronger and more resilient people. We can only hope. Well, George is lucky that he has a mother and a father, like you and your husband. Well, thank you. <laughs> that you stand up for him, that you stood beside him, that you protected him, and that you were able to persuade the principal right. to accept the original speech, because I can only imagine how pleased he must have been, after all the work that went into it, to have it ready, approved by the teacher, but then along came the principal. There were some stories this week about the continuation of the military sexual misconduct cases. We've talked about this a great deal. And it's very reminiscent of the programs we aired about the RCMP, the women in the RCMP, who were sexually harassed, assaulted for decades. And it was talked about periodically. We talked about it in Parliament. We talked about it in various circles. But then it would just disappear, and it would continue. It would be tacitly tolerated until enough was enough. And it really was Catherine Galliford and um, Janet Merlo who were the first women to really step up and push back really hard. And we've had the opportunity to speak with Catherine and with uh, Janet many times on this program. She'll be with us in a few minutes. But the Canadian military, the issue continues there very in a very concerning manner. Military sexual misconduct class action claims are up 170% over the last six months, Global News. And the Canadian military, here's another story from Global News from uh, Friday... The Canadian military has received more than, listen to this, more than 700 sexual assault reports since 2016. That's in five years. 700. And those are the ones that are reported. Joining us on the program, we've talked to him about this case many times. And he's one of the best people to talk to in this country when it comes to issues that have to do with the military. Is Michel Drapeau. He's a retired Canadian military colonel, Ottawa lawyer specializing in military-related cases. He has many clients who allege they are victims of sexual misconduct in the military. And you can go to mdlo.ca, michelledrapeaulawoffice.ca. Colonel Drapeau, thank you very much for the time. The military, the CAF, receiving more than 700 sexual assault reports since 2016. That's the headline. That's in five years. What does that speak of? Well, I speak to the problem. It's deep. It's wide. It, it has not been addressed. And by the way, the figures that are being used uh, is, uh, are very, very conservative. Uh, the uh, Statistic Canada did two surveys two years running in 2017 and 2018, and in each one of the years, they said that sexual assault were in excess of 800. Uh, so, yeah, so the problem has been going on for years. Um, the, the brass uh, has known about it and has done very little, um, you know, in Operation Honored, which was started by uh, John, uh, Jonathan Vance, uh, was, was basically a uh, a roadshow, but uh, it didn't produce any results. And uh, when I say the brass, I, I, I specifically want to mention the fact that uh, we're, we're talking about civilian and military brass at National Defense Headquarters, starting with the ministry, who's been there for six years now, the deputy ministry, who's been there for five years, to whom the sexual response centers reports to, 
and she's the principal advisor to the deputy minister, uh, to the to the minister as the deputy minister, uh, and of course the chief of the defense staff and the rest of the military staff, and all of those taken together, it's a big staff. It's a staff that knows exactly what I'm referring to when I talk about the Statistic Canada because this survey was commissioned by the Defense Department to begin with. So there is a, there is a lot of accountability that is required to be done, and it, it goes above and beyond the military staff that at the moment are, you know, are, are under the gun as they should be. Yeah, sexual misconduct class action lawsuits claims are up 170% over the last six months. That's a global news story. And it does really begin to remind of the RCMP sexual misconduct suits. And they took years to develop. This is very reminiscent, is it not? I, I think it is. It's, it's the same type of culture, the same type of uh, turning a blind eye to the issue, uh, primarily because uh, you were dealing with uh, the problem being so pervasive and being at a senior level, and uh, you could always find a reason as to why you should turn a blind eye or, 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 or be very forgiving about it. Uh, the military justice system has done this for years, where individuals would be charged under the criminal code for sexual assault and simultaneously be charged on, under the code of service discipline for conduct of the prejudice or go to during discipline, which is basically a, 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 a tap on the shoulders to say, you know, you better behave yourself and, and a small fine and uh, turn the page. There's no criminal records and there is no accountability uh, required of the officer concerned. So we're paying the price now for an accumulated culture that has taken decades and I say decades because we've had, I mean, the chief of the defense staff back into the early 1990, uh, Maurice Bail, uh responded to it and established some clear-cut uh, you know, orders and policies and so on and so forth, saying that uh, anybody, in fact, who's been harassed or sexually assaulted could, could come to him. Uh, so it's not as if this is a... You know, a flavor of the month, and uh, this is the the new generation, whatever. It's been there for decades, and for decades, the military brass and the civilian brass have turned a blind eye to it. Yeah. Now, somebody said to me, actually, it's been said more than once, and it's been emailed that the CIF leadership, the Canadian Armed Forces leadership, is in denial. And I said, no, they're not. They're not in denial. They know exactly what's uh, what's going on. They're not. They're they're toler. They're in. They're tolerating. It's they who. We're actually tolerating this, otherwise it would stop. So do you think, first of all, do you agree with that? And then secondly, do you think things will truly change, or does the top of the Canadian Armed Forces leadership have to change? Well, the first aspect is for many years, if I go back two or three years, there was a culture that was transparent at D&D, and it went like this. They had no tolerance for sexual assault. That was interpreted by many, many senior commanders and, and commanding officers as they have no tolerance to be informed about sexual assault. We don't want to hear about it and move on, do something, you know, but, but leave us alone. So that you know, no tolerance type of mésentente went on for a good number of years. Uh, can we address it? Uh, I think they have no choice, but it would only be addressed if the political masters get involved, starting from the dip, from the minister and, and coming down the chain to the ministers and the deputy ministers. And at the moment, the prime minister hasn't done anything except he's he's rolling the can down the hall and, and 
hoping that the election will come about and people will forget about it. He hasn't done anything. Uh, the, the ministry, we know, uh, has been very passive. He's appeared a number of times before two parliamentary committees, and he's, he's mumbled his way through, but has taken no commitment. The deputy minister, Judy Thomas, has not been seen anywhere, uh, but she is, in fact, a, the grey eminence. She is, in fact, the principal advisor to the minister, and she can hold senior military staff to account, and I guess she hasn't done that. And when it comes to senior military blasts, a number of them have been suspended. And, and there's, you know, there's nobody in charge at the moment that can say, this is what we're going to do and this is where we're going to go. Um, Mr. Justice Fish, I've submitted a report, but his report is full of recommendations, about 107 of them. But until these are not only accepted, but put into place, we're not going to see a real change. So at the moment, we're into a wait and see uh, and, and hope for the best for the next uh, whatever, until a, the government, in fact, uh, makes, uh, makes a decision as to who's going to be leading the force, what the policy is going to be, and then putting it into force through a new ministry and hopefully a new deputy minister and a new chief of the defense staff. Colonel Drapo, my sense is that the political leadership, and you're absolutely correct, they are the ones ultimately responsible, because ultimately they're the ones who have the ability, the right, the, 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 they have the, it's their job to intervene and to change things. I believe they have made a calculated political decision that this situation can be placed on hold and that the national sentiment of Canadians will not force them to act. Now, whether that's correct or not, I don't know, but it's my sense they've made this political calculation. Would you agree? And I, I, and I agree with you fully. They don't think this will be, in fact, an election issue. They don't think that the public uh, will keep its attention riveted upon the sexual misconduct in the forces and the decimated leadership that we have and the absence of, 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 of any accountability on the part of the civilian and the military brass. And uh, something will come along, and, and it always does, to change the channel, so to speak. I don't think, I don't think that the... Uh, the, the governing leaders at the moment, at the political level, feel some, somehow responsible or, or animated in any way, shape, or form, uh, you know, having to act. Uh, they just let it, let it be, and then, uh, you know, the summertime, the barbecue season, the, the, uh, the summer season will take care of it. Mm -hmm. uh, because otherwise, uh, they would react. And, and the crisis is important. It's a, one of the Canada's top national organization with an international mandate and, uh, you know, a reputation that goes back centuries, in fact. So there is an urgent need to address this and to make sure that women who want to serve in the forces and serving the forces can do so with dignity and safety and integrity. And that should be a political priority for any party. Yes, sir. Now, the issue of sexual misconduct, sexual harassment... And worse, the reports from the Canadian military, reminiscent of uh, what we talked about many years, actually, with women within the RCMP. So what's the expectation for a class action lawsuit concerning sexual misconduct? We know that up to a 170% increase in class action cases have been filed in the last six months. Now, these involve the Canadian military. Janet Merlot was one of the leaders of the $100 million class action lawsuit against the RCMP. She was one of the women, first women officers to come forward and push 
very hard so that people wouldn't ignore any longer the sexual misconduct within the RCMP. And uh, Janet's book, which I really believe uh, you will enjoy reading because it's so relevant, enjoy from the perspective that it provides you with information that you need. She's the author of No One to Tell, Breaking My Silence on Life in the RCMP. How are you, Janet? I'm good, thank you. Good to have you back with us. Thank you. When you uh, when you hear these stories about the sexual misconduct within the Canadian Armed Forces, how reminiscent is that of what you faced within the RCMP, including leadership not stepping up for women who were subjected to sexual harassment and worse? It's a mirror image, I think, of what we went through. It, it, it's so... It's so similar on so many levels that it's, it, it, I guess it's like we all work for the same organization. So it's, it's revisiting, really revisiting the past. Absolutely. What do you say to women within the Canadian Armed Forces? Not the 700 who've stepped forward over the last five years and have filed cases. Not the women who are within the, in these class action suits, 170% um, increase in six months. That's a huge number. What do you say to women within the forces who are contemplating uh, stepping forward? What advice do you have for them? I, w- I would suggest to them to do do whatever they're comfortable with. I know some people just didn't want to revisit anything, and other people had their paperwork ready to go the day that they could submit it. So it, it depends on the individual and Make sure you've got a good uh, support group around you. And Janet, if you get involved with the class action, so you've signed on, and you have legal representation, and there are numerous uh, people involved with you in the class action, what, what should you expect? What are, the, what are the surprises maybe that are waiting in, 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 in the class actions? What did you find? Well, I think one of the biggest things that we all kind of knew going into it, because we were familiar with the court system, but these class action, these lawsuits can take decades. They move at a glacial pace. and But now that there's a settlement in place for the military, like the RCMP, I think that once women realize there's a settlement in place and the, the structure is there for them to follow, they will be more, they would be more inclined to submit their information to make a claim. Okay. So, so what has to happen to change the culture within an organization? And the military is not that different to the RCMP. Their rules are obviously not the same, but structurally, uh, they're not all that different. So what has to happen to change the culture? And by the way, do you hear that the culture in the RCMP has in fact changed? No, I haven't heard of one person who has been disciplined, fired, suspended, investigated, anything as a result of our class action. Like I, I hear, and I still hear from women who are going through a rough time. So I, I oh, sorry, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I hear you fine, Janet. Oh, okay. It's on my end. Um, yeah, I still hear from women who are going through a, a rough time, so I don't think they've done anything to change. It needs to be done within the management. The management needs to be changed somehow, and this independent body to look at these claims separate, completely separate of the military and the RCMP needs to happen. 
because there's no faith in the in the organization to do it. Mm-hmm. We're just speaking with the Colonel Michel Drapeau, um, retired lawyer in Ottawa, who handles military cases and has an, uh, quite a few women as clients who uh, are alleging they were sexually harassed and victims of sexual misconduct within the armed forces. Uh, and I suggested to him that politicians have made a calculated uh, uh, move, and they're, they're calculating that no one's going to hold them accountable in the upcoming federal election if they don't become directly involved in changing the reality in the Canadian Armed Forces as far as sexual misconduct is concerned. And I would, I would argue that that took place previously when the RCMP issue was developing. Would you, do you think politicians just look the other way? Oh, absolutely. There, there has been report after report after report for decades in the RCMP telling about the, the assaults and the harassment, and nothing was ever done. And they just kicked the can down the road and hope someone else will deal with it later. But it's too deep, and it's too... It's, I, I can't even describe it. it. It's just too ingrained in the culture for them to change it. Would There's you no political will there to do it? Yeah. Would you advise a young woman to enter the Royal Canadian Mounted Police or the or the military at this juncture? You know, I would love to because I love my career and I love dealing with with people in the community and I and I worked with some wonderful men. Absolutely. But in in the culture that it is in today and and the, the way that the people have no voice when things like this happen, I wouldn't recommend it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 